All right, church, I got a question for you, a question for everybody in uh, Alma, in St. John's, online, Mount Pleasant. Um, what do these names have in common? Muhammad Ali, Lionel Messi, Steffi Graf, Pele, Michael Phelps, Usain Bolt, Jack Nicholas, Floyd May Mayweather, Cristiano Ronaldo, Arnold Palmer, Michael Jordan, Roger Federer, Serena Williams, Tom Brady, and Tiger Woods. Now you probably already get the point. I would say that they are probably some of the greatest names in a variety of sports, yeah? And people love to debate this stuff. Like already there are people like, why didn't you say such and such a person? Because they're the best and they're better than that person on the list. People love to go on and on about that stuff. And certainly those names that I just said, like a whole chunk of those people would have said, yes, I am. I am the greatest at my sport, and in particular, and I'm too young to remember this, maybe some of you are old enough to remember this, but I've watched plenty of clips of, uh, I, can't, I can hear his voice, it's Muhammad Ali, bragging, uh, so heavyweight boxer, and uh, this is what he said after be beating Sonny Liston in 1964, before I was around. He became the youngest world heavyweight champion. He's dancing around the ring at the end of the fight. He's still full of energy. And this is what he says, quote, I am the greatest fighter that has ever lived. Look at me. I don't have a mark on my face. I must be the greatest. I'm the king of the world. I'm a bad man. I shook up the world. I shook up the world. He is literally famous for the words, I am the greatest. He's famous for, for saying that exact phrase. And we love this stuff. I love this stuff. I mean, I, I love to watch it. And we enjoy, because these people are incredibly talented. They are so skillful. And it's their intellect and their charisma. And we just get drawn in. But it's not just sports. It's certainly sports, but sometimes you can look at other arenas. Like business or academics or invention or music or writing or Olympics or art. And we look at these people and we go, they're pretty great. They're really, really good at what they do. In the world that Jesus lived in, the idea of greatness was actually very, very well defined, especially by two groups of people, a group of people called the Greeks and a group of people called the Romans. For the Greeks, greatness had nothing to do with humility. In fact, humility was considered to be complete weakness. So what the Greeks believed in is they believed in your intellect and they also believed in the honors of the Olympics, which was this sense where you would maximize your physical strength and prowess and power. Aristotle, in his writing, he writes about what he defines as the great-souled man. He says this about the great-souled man. He is extremely proud and he should be proud. Look at this, he indulges, not in consumption, Aristotle says he indulges in conspicuous consumption. So I want everyone to see what I'm doing. For he likes to own beautiful and useless things. Imagine living in a world where people obsessed with status. Can you imagine such a thing? The Romans had a category unlike the Greeks. Um, they define greatness in terms of like a ladder. Like you might be up here or you might be on these levels going down to the bottom. And so at the top for Rome was Caesar. Had to be Caesar. 
And then they had, and these are the different levels going downward, they had senators, they had equestrians, they had decurions who would occupy government offices, they had military officers, and they even had their priesthood. All of these for the Romans were considered different levels of greatness, different titles of greatness. If you owned a horse, that was considered a status symbol of, of transportation. Imagine horsepower being a status of, of, uh, of greatness. It's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? And then down the bottom of their ladder, they had some really low categories. They had their nobodies. And these people were called freedmen's. And then at the very bottom, they had slaves. Now, funny enough for the Romans, check this out, clothes were a big deal. I'm not even joking you. Big, big deal. Because if you were towards the bottom of the ladder, but you were a freedman, you were allowed to wear a cap on your head. And what that indicated is that people were like, oh, that's a freedman's cap. They would know that. And so you've got to know this. If, if you were in that category, you were definitely going to wear that cap because you would be saying to yourself, well, at least I'm not a slave. So I may be low on the ladder, but I'm at least I'm not as low as that per person over there. And so I'm definitely going to wear that cap on my head. When boys hit the age of 14 years of age, they were allowed to wear a certain kinds of clothes. And it was known as a toga virilis. This was a garment of manhood. Uh, not a fun item to wear, I'm told, but every male teenager couldn't wait to put on this toga. Drafty in the winter, sticky in the summer, very difficult to arrange on your body. Some people, if you had the money, you would actually employ servants to continually, perpetually arrange your toga on your body to make sure that it draped correctly on your body. It had only one value. It was a proclamation of status. Can you imagine a world where your clothes, you get the point. A senator, he was allowed to wear a purple stripe on his toga. An equestrian was not allowed to have a purple stripe, but he could wear a very special ring on his finger. A Roman citizen, again, greatness, a Roman citizen was never allowed to be crucified because crucifixion was too shameful. If you were a Roman citizen, you were above that. Crucifixion was for slaves, very bottom of the, of the ladder. That's who you could crucify. Crucifixion was a slave's punishment. Well, one day, seemingly a nobody rabbi from a podunk little town who really had no money, no home, no resume. He went from village to village and town to town. But you see, he was doing something very new. He was breaking some rules and he was rewriting a script. And it was all about the definition of exactly what we've been talking about. The definition of greatness. And what are the rules and guidelines of what that means? For Everyone that he was talking to, that was all predicated on the kingdom of this world. And you're very familiar with that. I know that you are. But this seemingly nobody rabbi, he wasn't ushering in a kingdom of this world. He was ushering in the kingdom of God. And therefore, just about everything that he did or said seemed completely absurd to everybody. 
Everything he did was counterintuitive, and it was the opposite, and it was upside down to the way that everyone else thought and acted and spoke. Is it no wonder? There is nothing in common with the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. This rabbi's name was Jesus Christ, and he is making his way into Jerusalem for the very last time. And despite the fact that he's kind of a nobody from nowhere, this upside-down kingdom that he was talking to people about and showing people, it actually caught the attention of everybody. Everyone was mesmerized at what he was talking about. And I do mean everybody. Last week, we talked about these two sort of religious and political organizations, Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. They were, they were watching Jesus like hawks. Rome had heard about Jesus. And Jesus himself was battling crowd control every day. His ministry had a sense of momentum. And as he's walking into Jerusalem, there are many people who are coming in as we're approaching the Passover and thinking to themselves, well, Jesus is probably going to walk into Jerusalem. He's got this massive following now. Everybody wants to know about Jesus. He's probably going to declare himself king, declare himself Messiah. He's probably going to take Rome and just strangle Rome with his bare hands. We've seen what he can do with his hands. This is going to be amazing. Instead, as he's walking into Jerusalem, I think amongst throngs of people coming in, he takes his closest followers. He says, hey guys, come here. Come here. Before we get to Jerusalem, I got something to tell you. And actually, I got something hard to tell you. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. Mark chapter 9, verse 32. They're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And then we see this word again. Now pay attention to the word again. I want you to notice that because what's, what that is telling us is he's going to say something to them, but it's not the first time he said it to them. In fact, he's gone out of his way to say this to them multiple times, but for reasons that I just don't quite understand, it's not sinking in. Here's what he says to them again. Again, he took the 12 aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise. Now, I don't know why, but it's like it just, it just didn't compute. None of it made sense to them. None of it was sinking in. Not the mocking or the spitting or the flogging or the killing. They didn't even pick up on the really good news at the back end of it where he says, and three days later, I'll rise again. It doesn't seem to compute. Now, let me ask you this question. What would you do? What would you do if somebody said, hey, do you mind if I have a quick word with you? Could you sit down here with me for a second? And they sat down and they told you some hard news. Maybe something really difficult. Something very hard. Imagine somebody confiding you about something like cancer. Or somebody saying, yep, you know, my, my dad passed away or I lost my job. What would any normal person do? Any normal person would say, you know, man, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank, thanks for telling me. That's an honor that you would tell me that. Um, I want you to know, I, like, I'm going to be praying for you. 
you might, you might pray with them right there. Or you might say something like, gosh, is there anything I can do to help you? Church, that's a normal response. It is. So I want you to brace yourself. I want you to check out what the disciples say to Jesus after he downloads into them, not just your average bad news, but like flogging, mocking death. I want you to check out their response. I'm going to read it from Mark chapter 10. Same story. They were on the road going to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What's wrong with that picture? Would you do whatever we want you to do? We're not going to tell you what we want you to do. We just want you to do whatever that is what we want you to do. Jesus, would you commit in advance right now to just doing whatever we want right after he just told them the most painful, difficult news that you could probably ever tell a person. I'm going to be jeered, mocked, flogged, killed. Okay, do for us whatever. We're not going to tell you what it is, but why don't you just do for us? Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Can I just stop for a second, church? Would you agree with me to simply say, God is so unbelievably patient? That's my story. I think if I could do a role reversal with God, if God could be Alan and Alan could be God, I would have been like, we're all done now, Alan. I'm done. God has been so patient with me. I think there are many here listening to me who say, God has been so patient with me. They answered him, verse 37, and they said to him, here's what we want. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left hand in your glory. Finding out what they wanted makes it even worse. So yeah, like really sorry about the death thing. That's tough. But when you get to the glory thing, that's what we want to talk to you about. Not the death thing or the flogging or the mocking or the jeering or the whipping, but the glory thing. Yeah, we want to talk to you about that moment when you're in your glory when you kick Rome out of here, when the Pharisees finally come up and they start saying, Jesus, we're so sorry. We didn't know. We didn't understand. When the lights are shining on you, is it okay that we're really close to you when the light is shining on you? We want to get really close to you in that moment. In fact, we basically want to be right at your right and right on your left. We know that we can't be as great as you but maybe we could be almost as great as you. Like, like just a little bit underneath. Verse 41, and when he heard, excuse me, when the 10 heard this, so 10 of the other 12, they, became, they began to be indignant with James and John. Guys, that was so rude. He just told you he's gonna die. I can't believe that you would take that. Talk about insensitive. Nope. That's not what the Bible says. Do you know why they're indignant? Because they beat him to the question. 
We want to sit at his right. We want to sit at his left. Verse 42, Jesus called to them and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So he's talking about the kingdom of this world. You guys, you know the Gentiles. You know the way they are. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over people. And they're great ones. They exercise authority over people. They're like, yeah, Jesus, tell us something we don't know. Yeah, I, that's, that's the world we live in. That's how the world works. That's the way it always works. It's a dog-eat-dog world, right? There are some people, and they get to be in charge somehow, and they get to tell us people who are not in charge what they get, you know, what we're to do, and they just get to bark at us, and we have to jump through hoops. But then those people, maybe there's people under them, and they can bark at those people. That's the world we live in. We get it, Jesus. There are masters, and there are kings, and then there are pawns, and there are peasants and slaves. And we've lived that all of our lives, and we know where we're at on which rung in the ladder. Verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. That very thing that you're very familiar with. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. And maybe what they don't understand, but what Jesus does know is that in a very few short weeks, a month or two, do you know what the disciples are going to be? They're going to be rock stars. They really will. Jesus will be gone. And who's everybody going to look to? These men are going to be filled with the Spirit of God. And people are going to want to hear what they have to say. People are going to look to them. They're going to walk up to people and say, pick up your mat and walk, and they're going to pick up their mat and walk. Demons are going to be delivered. Leprosy is going to be gone. And everyone's going to want a slice of them and a piece of them. And it's going to be massive. And guys, you are going to be the ones in charge. And just remember, when you're in charge, not so with you. You don't get to function, behave, talk, and treat other people the way you've seen anyone else with power and authority treat other people. You're not going to do that. People will lean into you for direction. Remember, you're not supposed to do it the way that you've seen other people do it all your life. Not so with you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Church, can you say servant? Altogether, servant. But whoever be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. So Jesus is like, hey, you want to be great? That's fine. You want to be first? No problem. Let me define you. Let me define that for you. It's a paradigm shift. If you want to be great and you want to be first, you're going to be slave to all. Verse 45, and here's the proof for Jesus. For even the Son of Man came to, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now let me tell you, you look at titles, and you look at the rungs on the ladder. If your title is Son of God, if your title is Son of Man, that's it. It doesn't get higher than that. Wrap your head around this. The Son of God did not come to be served, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. 
So if the Son of Man didn't come to be served, and we are the body of Christ, and we represent the Son of God, and we're the ones who carry the gospel, what does that mean about the way we live our lives? Do you want to be great? Do you want to be first? I don't know if I want to be great anymore. I don't know if I want to be first anymore, actually. Because if you want to be great, and if you want to be first, you become slave of all. You still want to be first? No, I'm not so sure anymore. I don't know. Paul, gentleman who wrote about a third of the New Testament, he's writing a letter to Rome. The book is called Romans. Do you remember the Romans' definition of greatness? And he starts penning his letter by describing himself not as a Roman citizen, not as a, a wearer of a toga. He starts describing his letter. You're like, I don't know if this is a good way to start your letter, Paul. He calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul, why would you write like that? If you want our attention and our respect, you might want to go for another title. That's not a good title at all. Paul, you're committing social suicide. You see, Paul sees the need in people like you and me for status, for honor. And so he says this crazy, crazy statement. I mean, just blowing people's minds. He says, I'll tell you what our message is. We're going to preach. This is the most important thing. We're going to preach Christ crucified. No. A nobody rabbi who died a slave's death. That can't be the central message. And you're calling yourself a slave to him. Yep. He says, it's a stumbling block to Jewish people. Man, I don't know what to make of that. And for Gentiles, you know what that is? <clears throat> it's foolishness. That's crazy. Paul's not picking words out of thin air. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's saying. The Romans thought that anyone who died on a cross was a piece of dirt. The Jewish people, they thought that anyone who died on a piece of wood was cursed by God. And Paul says that's the central message. In two cultures that are absorbed with greatness. And Paul says about himself and about you and about me, we serve the crucified slave named Jesus Christ. We consider ourselves slaves to the slave. That's who we are. Later on, same guy, Paul. They arrest him for that message. And they take him. And they just, like professional soldiers, they beat the tar out of him. And he's imprisoned. And eventually he's released. What's really interesting is when he is released, he protests and he says to them, I'm a Roman citizen. And all of a sudden everybody's, <clears throat> man, Paul, we're so sorry. And they're very apologetic. We, we didn't know this. We're very frightened because now what they've done is they have violated a Roman law by beating a Roman citizen. This raises an obvious question. Paul, why did you tell them that you were a Roman citizen after they beat the tar out of you? That's not a small thing to be beaten by professional soldiers. Because Paul knows that he is starting a group of followers. And not all of them have status or titles. In fact, they are the non-elite. And he knew that other followers would suffer for the sake of this message that was considered foolishness. 
He knew that they would suffer and that they would not have the status that he had to protest. And so he says, I'm not going to use my title. I will suffer. I will choose to suffer. I will suffer gladly. And he simply humbles himself. There's a guy called James, and he writes a book with his own name. And he says that when visitors come to the church for the first time, he says, do not favor people. Look at this. Wearing gold rings, equestrians, or fine jewelry over a shabbily dressed man. There it is. Clothes and jewelry and status. Church greatness has been redefined by Jesus Christ. We're not running an endless race for achievement. Amen? Like that's not our lives anymore. Our ultimate value is no longer self-fulfillment, me getting my way. We're not interested in our own glory. Amen? And that's a struggle. And I say that to you, and yet there's something inside of us that goes, well, a little bit. Yeah, I'm interested in my own glory. We're not here to impose our own will. We don't resent serving. And having told the disciples about greatness, he then brings them into Jerusalem and he illustrates the point in a way that they would never, ever forget. He removes his outer garment and he wraps a towel around his waist. Jesus is now wearing the uniform of a slave. And he bends down and he washes their feet. And I don't think anyone was saying a word. I think they sat there in silence. And Peter can't cope. And he's like, Jesus, you're not washing my feet. I'm telling you right now, you're not doing that. Jesus died stripped of his robe. Was that his status symbol? Because if it was, it was gone. Naked, convicted by the law, and given the mocking title, King of the Jews. He wore the garb of a slave. He took the position of a slave. He suffered the death of a slave. What was noted about Jesus is that he chose to do all of those things. One of the earliest writings about Jesus simply says this phrase, he humbled himself. Nobody, nobody deliberately humbles themselves until now. Jesus enters the world wearing swaddling clothes. He exits the world in the towel of a slave. Think of him how you will. Greatness looks different now. I'm going to ask us to worship the Lord very gently for just a moment. And I'm going to sing sort of the simplest little song about the greatness of God. And here's what I ask you to do. As we sing about the greatness of God, I want you to think of that word as you're singing it, but I want you to redefine it the way that Jesus just redefined it. So when we sing the little phrase, how great is our God, it's not just that you're saying, God is all-powerful and he's amazing and he's incredible and he's huge and he's the creator of the entire universe and all of that is true and praise God for that. But we're saying something different today. What we're saying is, Jesus, I worship you because I see that you came to serve somebody like me, that you lowered yourself, that you humbled yourself from the throne of God to become a crucified slave. And all I can say in this moment is I want to thank you for that. So church, could we stand together and could we worship this king? Is our God. Sing with me how 
So church, what does obedience look like for us today? I would suggest to you today that it is a complete paradigm shift for your life. And I want to ask you to carry this truth with you as you walk out the doors. And here's what it simply is. God, sign me up. Sign me up for greatness as you define greatness. I don't have to be the center of attention. I don't have to be the center of the world. Sign me up to serve. I don't need a title. I don't care about titles. I don't need pats on the back. I don't need the credit. I don't need to be noticed. I don't need to be thanked. Just sign me up to wash feet. Whatever you think that looks like, Jesus, that's what I'll do. I'll serve my children. I'll humbly love my wife. I'll humbly love my husband. I'll serve my friend, my colleague, my neighbor. I'll serve a stranger. I'll serve a person that I don't even like. I'll wash their feet. I'll be glad to do that. Look at what you've done for me. I'll be glad to do that for anybody else. I'm happy not to be first. I'm happy not to get the attention. I'm just happy to help other people in the name of Jesus Christ. I'll help a hurting soul and I'll listen to them and I'll pray and I'll speak loving words and I'll speak needed words and I'll speak brave words and I'll speak life-giving words. I'll do any task you want me to do, Jesus. I'm not too important. It's not too big for me. I'm not too big for it. I'll mop the floor. I'll clean the toilets. Because I refuse to be entitled. I refuse to be entitled. That will not be a definition of me or my personality or my character. I refuse to be a Christian who just spectates in the world. I refuse to think of myself as better than other people. I refuse to be just a consumer Christian where it's all just for me. I see the greatness of my God and I am hum how you humbled yourself and how you laid aside your rightful privilege to be a ransom for me. So I'm not living for me anymore. I'm not living for status or for clothes or for rings or for cars or for my own honor. I'm not even interested in my own rights or my way, or my opinion, or me first, or what I want. None of that is important. It doesn't factor in anymore. I don't need to be noticed or seen. I don't need the attention. I'll just wash feet. That's what I'll do. And I'll serve, and I'll work, and I'll give. And if I never get the accolades, if I never get praise and thanks, then here's what I'll just do. I'll just quietly take that praise and thanks, and I'll just direct it towards the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, it will be normal for me to find ways to be a slave to the crucified slave. 
Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, help me and empower me and anoint me to be great. Amen. Church, I love you. God bless.